0: for another day. That is for another day. Welcome yes. to Geeks with Kids, everybody. Your parenty conversational podcast to deal with all things involving nerdery. Um, I'm Mark, and today I'm here with Steve. Hello, Steve. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well.
0: Uh, Eric's not here tonight because he is currently busy doing his whole theater thing. So, yes. hopefully we'll be Back talking with him again soon. But uh, so tonight we decided you and I would sit down and discuss one of our points of mutual nerdery, which is collectible card games.
1: Yes, indeed. <clears throat> How many thousands of dollars we have spent on collectible card games?
0: I'm currently eyeballing a, probably about 1,500 cards on my desk right now that I'm going through as I'm whittling down my magic collection. That's not including the uh, Blood Wars CCG collection I used to have that I sold. And hmm, my I didn't realize that uh, any other
1: person, well, actually played that game. That's amazing.
0: When, when I, the funny thing, I never actually played it. I collected oh. it because I'm a huge Dungeons and Dragons player, and yes. Planescape is actually my favorite setting. Yes, and I found all these cards in a. Uh, hobby shop in Hamilton that was closing down and I literally got probably three or 4,000 cards for, Wow. I think I paid like 25 cents a pack, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And this would have been like early 2000s and I'd never played it before, which is crazy because I was a huge, um, I was a huge Spellfire fan. And mm-hmm, Wizard, mm-hmm. or sorry, TSR canned Spellfire, and then brought out Blood Wars as kind of a rela- uh, replacement for it. Mm,
1: that's <laughs> strange. That's a weird uh, replacement because the games, from what I understand, are completely different.
0: Well, so Spellfire I don't, uh, was getting killed in the market at the time by Magic: The Gathering, and of course, this yeah. was this was kind of at the transition time, I believe, when Wizards bought them out. Right, and. Um, it was getting killed. So they tried to do something to fix it and it didn't work because blood wars didn't do that. Okay. Either.
1: Well, I think this is a, actually a good point, uh, to introduce, uh, the topic, uh, for those who are unfamiliar or, um, or, uh, don't know that much about, uh, collectible card games or what is colloquial call, uh, shortened down to CCGs. Um, in, uh, 1993, um Richard Garfield um decided to create a game in which uh his main thesis was that uh everything a player does breaks the rules of the game so thereby everyone is constantly manipulating the game and changing it towards their benefit and this was the birth of Magic the Gathering which was the first uh well considered the first i mean it might be arguable that there were other ones um but it was the first one that made it uh, into the mainstream and um, uh, related to uh, what uh, Mark was just saying, um, at the time <clears throat> the gaming hobby was largely focused on role-playing games uh, like Dungeons and Dragons, which used to be run by a company called TSR. And when Garfield uh, created Magic: The Gathering, his company Wizards of the Coast, uh, very quickly took over the gaming scene and uh, i happened to be working at a hobby store during this this period uh, of time and um my goodness the landscape changed overnight everybody was creating card games because uh the collectible part of the collectible card games means that when you buy these games you get them in little packs kind of like hockey cards uh and just like hockey cards you don't know what you're going to get um so the packs of a have a well, arguably, a uh, gambling quality to them, and I don't think anybody anticipated at the time also the uh, the expendable income that children had in the 90s, uh, because I don't think children before the 90s had that much money, um, and so suddenly you had these kids coming into the stores buying uh, a couple packs, you know, every once in a while, and uh, before long, uh, all the role playing games uh, collapsed, and um, that was the end of TSR. <laughs> Um, it was a bit of a sad turn of events, but that's how things go. You know, um, the interest, uh, folk, uh, changed to, uh, collectible card games and, uh, traditional books, which, you know, would cost 20, $30, uh, pop versus, you know, a two, $3 pack, uh, just could not compete. Uh, even though, you know, ultimately you'd spend far more than you would on a role-playing game, you know, <laughs> but, uh, that, uh, that gambling element and, um, that small price point uh, meant uh, the death of uh, all role-playing game companies as we knew it uh, by the end of uh, the nineties. So I don't know if uh, you wanted to jump in.
0: Well, I think, I think being a role player and a CCG player, I think the appeal for kids at the time to start off with a dungeons and dragons book would run you usually minimum $25 up to around 50 bucks in Canada. Mm-hmm. and a pack of you know magic cards or spellfire cards you could get for $3. Yes. So you could get a starter deck. I, starter decks that were priced at like, I know they were about 8 bucks in America. I think they were like $10 or $11 here. So you could sit down and play magic with your friends for 10 or $12. Whereas with yes. the role-playing game, you'd need four or five of these different books, whether it was Dungeons and Dragons or uh, the Palladium system or... Shadowrun, any of those games. They're all fantastic games, Mm -hmm. but just the entry-level price point was so much higher. Now, let's not... It is
1: true in that um, everybody could purchase their own um, components to play whereas generally when you uh, played role playing games a lot of the time <clears throat> uh, there'd be uh, the books would have to get spread around and um, you maybe maybe had to go to the library to get some you know so it was, it was trickier to have to have the material um, uh, because it was so much more expensive um, but yes I, definitely having your own cards and being able to play at lunch um, was uh, one of the major conveniences of, uh, of what ccg's brought
0: the other thing i think though is and i see it today with the toys that a lot of my daughter's friends want and so forth it had that kind of blind bag aspect where mm-hmm. you don't really know what you're gonna get and mm-hmm. you go out and buy something and you go oh that was disappointing mm-hmm. but instead of going oh that was disappointing you, yeah, i'm not gonna bother with those you turn around and go well i'm gonna get three more of those because then maybe i'll get that card i want yeah, and so there's like yeah. an addictive quality to kids purchasing it.
1: Yeah, it, it really is gambling. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. <laughs> but but I mean, uh, they've somehow managed to slip by and, and not uh, not caught any major regulations. So good good on them, you know. But 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 that's what it. I is. think it's a lot of
0: gambling, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the old sports cards. You yes. can't really turn around now and say this is gambling when yes. for years of years and years kids have been buying hockey cards and baseball cards yeah. and football cards no it's and true no one that said about it
1: yeah no that that is i think the established um mentality back in the day and i think the argument uh i mean this is a little bit of an aside but you know right now in the video game world there's there's a huge debate over uh, digital loot boxes and and whether or not those constitute gambling um and one of the major arguments the card companies are able to uh, put forth is that when you buy a pack of cards Uh, You get a physical item which has some value. Like, regardless of whether you don't get the card you want or you get, you know, maybe unpopular cards, those cards do have a set value. So you get something from your purchase. Whereas uh, it's a little bit more of a gray area when you're talking about digital property, right? I mean, at that point, it's like, you know, this doesn't actually have intrinsic value outside of you know, the lifetime of the a, of a video game. Um, so that's that's how I think CCGs have managed to largely fend off, you know, any accusations of uh, addiction,
0: <laughs> for better or for worse. I think, yeah, the, the uh, CCG manufacturers, publishers, whatever you want to call them, can always make the argument that, look, we're selling you eight or 10 or 15 pieces of cardboard that have value as a piece of cardboard. We're not in control of any costs in the secondary market. So mm-hmm. that cardboard we're selling you has the value of essentially one of a pack. That's true. Any yeah, value true. Being added is being added by a secondary market. So to wizards, any rare card is worth exactly the same as any common card. Yes. Just a piece of cardboard and they cost the same to produce, but it's the secondary market that takes it and says, well, suddenly this, Black Lotus is worth thirty thousand dollars in gem mint condition, whereas right. this crappy common from is Am- worth eight cents. That's not a right, wizard's right. decision; it's made by other people. So that's probably yeah. part of how they escape it as well.
1: Yeah, that's probably yeah. true. Um, yeah, that would be that would be a good discussion for another day, like how how the market exists. <laughs> Um, so I guess, uh, again, further to those who uh, don't know much about CCGs. Um, so Magic the Gathering is, is a game in which you uh, get to build your own deck, which is a huge feature of it. You get to personalize it. And uh, it uses a mechanic. I don't want to get into too much detail, whereby um, the idea is that each player uh, is, uh, is a wizard or planeswalker. Um, And uh, that's the term from the the game setting. And what you do is uh, the cards represent uh, spells, um, many of them uh, which summon uh, creatures or or soldiers to your side. And uh, the goal is to bring enough uh, forces uh, or spells to bear on your opponent uh, that you're able to uh, reduce their life total. To zero before yours uh, is reduced to zero. Uh, there are other conditions that can cause uh, a win or a loss, uh, but that's that's the general gist of it. And um, uh, the game involves uh, making decks of uh, sixty cards, and also using some of those cards to uh, power cards. Uh, I bring this up because uh, later card systems. Uh, would evolve this mechanic, um, <clears throat> but uh, initially it was based on the idea that you had lands, which you, which you put into play, and they would generate power. Um, and uh, the system was, you know, easy enough for people to understand, and uh, it launched uh, what we call the, you know, the CCG market as we know it today.
0: That's pretty good dis- description of it. And um, most of the other games to sort of take their own their own tack and they do things slightly different. They're all kind of related. It's usually one person battling another person. Sometimes they're multiplayer versions and even magic has created all sorts of different, what they call formats. Mm -hmm. But out of curiosity, Mm -hmm. what was it that got you started on in the first place? How did you fall down the rabbit hole?
1: That's, that's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, it's, uh, I do think it was some friends, uh, because I didn't initially buy into Magic until it was introduced to me. So um, I'm not entirely sure how they got started on it. Um, But yeah, uh, you know being introduced, being shown, you know, these cool looking cards and the, you know, it captured the imagination, you know, because it, magic is primarily a fantasy setting. So it took a lot of tropes, you know, um, which, you know, as a, as a young teenager, um, I quite enjoyed, you know, the idea of knights and dragons and, and goblins and so on and so forth. So, um, and, and I guess the convenience of being able to play, you know, in a small location. And then also that, you know, there was, it was this thing, you know, that like everybody was into, there was a palpable excitement. Um, so yeah, I, I was introduced to it as a, by through, through, um uh, acquaintances. Uh, but then, um, I did eventually ended up working at a hobby store during that time, as I mentioned. And so that led me, uh, indirectly to, the expanded universe of card games that would grow from that. Um, But uh, before we get into that, uh, how did uh, you get introduced to uh, magic, uh,
0: Mark? Um, It was pretty inevitable that I ended up playing magic. Magic actually wasn't my first CCG. My first CCG was Spellfire. And Mm. I came to that through two different kind of alleyways. First of all, when I was a kid, I started my favorite books were choose your own adventure novels. And those, Ah, those, Rolled into fighting fantasy novels, which was yes. Steve Jackson and uh, Ian Livingston were the guys who started those. And then yep. in the mid to late 80s, at some point, I was probably around nine or ten or something, I can't remember exactly, but the board game Hero Quest came out. Oh, yes. Which I still have to this day. And mm-hmm. uh, me and one of my buddies started playing that pretty much religiously. We were making our own adventures for that game and so forth. And then eventually we ended up going to separate high schools and I fell okay. into a Dungeons and Dragons crowd at my high school. And he started playing Spellfire at his high school. Okay. With other people. So I was learning all about the different TSR worlds that they'd created for their role playing games. Right. And he was learning about them, but in a different aspect through, um, Spellfire, the game, and he showed me it one day, and I was like, "This is like playing my RPGs, and you know, in a yeah. half hour period, and so forth. This is fantastic." And yeah, that was kind of the entry point, and it was Spellfire for the first couple years. And I probably, I I've had lots of dark periods with magic, so I'll play for two or three years, inevitably sell my whole collection. <laughs> Regret it like a year and a half later. Come back. And so, yeah. That's how... It's a terrible, horrible
1: mistress. That's a a horrible cycle. You know, the funny thing is the friend who introduced me to Magic did the same thing. He actually had an Emerald Emerald Mox when he sold his collection. And I still remember the day he sold the collection because I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to prove, you know. And I have so many friends who go through – who've gone through this cycle now that we're all, you know – Far into adulthood, we don't do this anymore. But I mean, I just, it's just amazing that I, so and my friends just wanted to, I just purge, purge their gaming childhoods for some reason. And I, I never understood this. I, I'm, I guess, too much of a pack rat, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bear to separate. So I still have the magic cards I started out with. Um, and for me, it was um, Fallen Empires was my first uh, entry point. Um, but my goodness, Mark, that is like the most amazing perfect story of how you got into like f- from step by step because i also played role playing games too um but um but it wasn't such like a perfect stream of you know fandoms like as as in your case like that's that's
0: amazing <laughs> i think it all started originally in the early 80s with star wars and then sure. that just like awakens your mind to all sorts yeah. of things. But yeah that's uh i was pretty much predestined to blow all of my money on little cardboard rectangles (laughs) it was inevitable
1: yeah well i mean the thing i guess that fascinates me the most about ccgs even to this day is uh is the idea of um creating your own deck and and the the ability to craft something and to really understand it and figure it out mechanically uh that's that's where i come from and that's the reason why i have Uh, even, you know, consistently kept up on new card games and tried to find, you know, whenever games are on sale, uh, I still pick them up because I just I just like to get into the to the nitty gritty of the mechanics of the odds and, um, and the the different effects that uh, that come about, Uh, which is largely why I actually do have uh, some qualms about magic, because um, as much as I respect magic, as the the granddaddy of, of all CCGs, um, as I was mentioning, uh, even the, the land system, which is used to mechanically power uh, the game and, and, and move it forward, it's, uh, it's incredibly primitive um, to the point where uh, my early observation, and I, I know this would be something we could argue if this was a magic episode, but my early observation was that, in fact, in most cases, at least early on, I'd say for the first 10 years of the game, uh, if you ever had two people playing only one person was ever actually playing. The other player was trying to play catch up because they just couldn't cast anything. And they were just sitting there struggling, trying to, trying to get into the game. Whereas the other guy, the other guy would be like humming along, just beating the crap out of you. So to me, it was a a very poor system because of this, this uh, possibility of imbalance. Now I know they've rectified this to a large degree, but it's still a, a fundamental flaw in my opinion. But this is a, this is a discussion for another day, but it's a good jumping off point because, um, as you mentioned, uh, with um, uh, your experiences of going through Spellfire uh, into uh, Magic, uh, for me, it was uh, working at the hobby store. Um, I noticed a, a game, uh, as you mentioned, uh, was Blood Wars. Uh, and the reason that one caught my attention was the artwork, uh, first and foremost. And uh, I kind of did the backwards uh, situation with what you did. Um, I didn't know anything about Planescape. I knew Dungeons and Dragons, and I had a vague idea of some of the settings. But uh, TSR uh, very wisely jumped on this bandwagon, uh, created Blood Wars, featuring all the art by D. who's the prime artist of the Planescape setting. It's Tony D. he's
0: probably Amazing. my favorite fantasy artist. So hence sold the yes. hundreds of dollars worth of Planescape books and box sets on my nerd shelf. Yeah. And
1: th- th- that's what happened to me. Um, I bought a, a starter. It was like, a it was a set that came with two decks that you could just play right out of the box, uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, blood wars, uh, just for the art. That was my, that was my justification. Cause I was like, I don't know what these card games, you know, I stick with magic. Right. Uh, but I bought that. I was fascinated by the setting. And um, it the marketing worked. I ended up buying... Uh, I probably have a fairly complete collection of Planescape. I might be missing one or two things. But uh, yes, I ended up buying all of Planescape over the, the years that followed. Uh, but more importantly, I actually, um, I actually figured out how to play that game. Um, so uh, Blood Wars uh, is one of my favorite card games. Uh, no one has ever played it. Um, the reason is <laughs> it is uh, actually... Too complicated. So, um, you know, I'll be totally fair. You know, I I have issues with magic, but Blood Wars had one major failing, and that was the instruction manual uh, could not actually explain the game properly. There was a guide that you had to buy, and I I do say you had to buy, uh, which was a whole other book, um, which is now impossible to find. And it actually broke down how the game worked because the game functioned around a system of. Uh, deck size and depending on your deck size there were certain ratios of certain types of cards so already uh, i'm sure everyone is you know going wow this is way more complicated than it needs to be it was actually quite interesting though because you could build a deck that was 30 cards and it would still somehow be balanced against a deck of 100 cards because they were so specific in how these ratios would work. And there were advantages and disadvantages to having both. Um, But um, anyway, uh, I guess I'll just uh, try to quickly wrap up um, Blood Wars. Uh, Blood Wars came out in uh, uh, 95. Uh, It was to mark the 20th anniversary of TSR. And um, it introduced uh, the Planescape setting to most people. Um, But uh, one of the things I liked so much about the game was that um, it allowed for a very compelling multiplayer experience? Uh, see, one thing with Magic is it—it's it, designed around the idea of a duel, and you can actually play it with more people. Um, at which point, it actually becomes a very different game. I mean, I do think of multiplayer Magic is fascinating because it's it becomes sort of political, and becomes it's sort probably, of a struggle.
0: It's probably the most entertaining version of Magic. Like, yes, one-on-one Magic can be. Um, quick interesting but i've always found multiplayer magic adds certain facets to the game and it's very interesting Mm -hmm. that cards that are almost useless in single player become incredibly useful in multiplayer and even abilities within cards shift in their validity depending on which way you're playing
1: yeah absolutely i totally agree and uh, my criticism of, of magic's uh, uh land mana system uh, is largely mitigated by uh multiplayer um when you have more than two people uh it stretches out the game and comfortably allows uh, everybody to participate in some way uh either by kin making king making somebody or or by playing one player against the other but these are these are elements that only come into play when you have uh, more than two um, Blood Wars took that to another level, though, because um, you would only be able to launch conflicts against one target. But other participants in the, in the game could opt to side with one player or the other uh, by applying one unit to the struggle um, in, uh, in question. And so it was a way for people to almost uh, uh, add a vote. You know, uh, a small token um, towards a, a conflict between other players. Um, so, in this respect, uh, Blood Wars was best played with uh, four players um, because it would allow um, the the best possibility for both sides to to gain favor. Um, but um, you would also be rewarded if your uh, side won. Um, so, it was a very interesting mechanic for an early game um, to uh, bring in a kind of like a political you know, almost notion to it, um, which is one of the things that always stuck with me is how utterly efficient the game was and also how um, engaging it was with more people. Um, But the one failing being its efficiency was tied to a whole separate tome that you had to read in order to even know how to play the game, which is at the end of the day, really not the way you should make card games.
0: (laughs) No, I think I think that ability to kind of team up and Um, contribute resources to other people is interesting because it kind of harkens thematically to the whole faction basis of the Planescape role playing. Like where different factions will, you know, secretly lend allegiance to other ones and all sorts. So it's, it's kind of exactly it's thematically interesting that way, which is pretty cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think
1: that's probably one quality of the games that I'll be talking about today. Um, that uh, is consistent is they're games in which the theme and the mechanics are balanced um, because I, I like. I like that when we're playing that it has good mechanics like it can't be like you know a totally ridiculous random game in which you know the player has very little agency uh but at the same time, I want the theme to come through and and that was as you just said um one of the qualities of the planescape universe was the the myriad of of um agendas and sides and uh, and the fact that the game um was able to integrate this was uh was a pretty, uh, pretty neat thing for such an early CCG.
0: I, I'm, I now wish I had figured out how to play it actually.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Instead of just having boatloads of cards for no reason.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I'd be happy to uh, to set that up sometime. But the problem is, Indeed. I've got to find that uh, that little tome that because <laughs> <laughs> I uh, no seriously, you cannot go off of the instructions, and now. I don't even know if you'd be able to find a, a fan website that would have that data now. It's it's been too long, but uh, but yeah, we'll look into
0: that. I actually googled it after I saw you were a Blood hmm. War player, and apparently, the Lady of Pain card is still worth 150 bucks online. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, but, well, uh, it's just, I had two of them.
1: Wow! Oh my I, god! I gave
0: that away for
1: nothing. <laughs> oh, don't tell me stuff like that. Time to kick
0: myself.
1: I bought, I bought 20 booster boxes to get one. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yes, it's that I, rare.
0: I, I, wow, I bought a bunch of packs at some store and got. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, That's no, I, I, I had to buy 20 full booster boxes until I actually got one. Oh, boy, that hurts. That hurts my That's
0: heart. painful. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I was well, always hoping. I don't know if there ever was one, but um, mm-hmm. from plain from the Planescape setting, there's a, a, a guide to the main city called Sigil or Sigil, who, uh, whichever way you like to pronounce Sigil. it. That's how I pronounce Sigil. it. Some people call yeah, it Sigil. But. Okay. Um, Kylie, she was this guide. And I always thought she was a fascinating character. because She was completely hmm. neutral, but she kind of hmm. would help anybody. And I always wanted her card. Oh, fun. It's also some of my favorite uh, Planescape art by DJ Louie, the <laughs> Kylie and the... Um, faces of ungaged faces of sigil or whatever the book's called. Yeah. But um, uh, I never got one. Could never hmm.
1: find it. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a card. I'll have to look that up. Um, interesting. Uh, it, it is, I think I can say definitively that it is sigil because um, one of the uh, things I did pick up that also uh, catapulted me into the Planescape uh, setting was a uh, something called the the primer and it came with a a cd uh which was amazing because the cd was a series of uh audio plays uh from uh tour guides um who had been sent uh to make recordings uh of the various gate towns uh surrounding the outer plains you are talking
0: Um, about the player's primer to the aliens yes it's on yeah. my shelf over there.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the, in the CD, I, I believe they call uh, the city sigil. So I'm just using okay. the, the you know the recording uh, for that basis.
0: That's what I've always called it. <clears throat>
1: mm-hmm. Wow. So well, what other card games? Uh, well, actually, no. How about you describe a little more about Spellfire? Because that's actually a game do. that I never actually played, even though, of course, I was completely aware of it because it's one of the oldest games compared with Magic. Um, and uh, it I was think, quite I think
0: popular. Spellfire was one of the first competitors to Magic. Yes. And they ended up... Um, I believe Magic was really released originally in ninety three, late 93, but it didn't get its major release until uh, 94, which is when that's post... Uh, or after the alpha and beta sets, which were kind of a limited right. release, hence why right. they're so ridiculously valuable these days. Right. And it went up against um, TSR's Spellfire, which, yes. again, was a land-based game. But instead of using that land to get mana to power your spells, you instead mm-hmm. had to get a certain amount of lands on the table. And okay the standard format was you needed to have a six lands and they kind of create this layout in this triangle shape and you would use champions, which would be primarily, um, either monsters or famous characters from any of the TSR world. So if you're familiar right. with the forgotten realms, there was a Doard and card and, Bruner Battlehammer and if you uh, know Dragonlance, there was Ray Magir, and Karam, and Tika and all of those characters. But they never actually touched on Planescape, which always frustrated me. They only came right. a year apart. I thought I could have sworn that Blood Wars was later than that. But you're right, it was it was ninety five hmm. whereas Spellfire was ninety four and it was it was the first real competition for magic. It didn't yeah. do nearly as well as magic. And its problem occurred with they power ramps too quickly. So uh, okay. uh, you would buy, if you were saying, say you were buying the fourth booster set for the game, suddenly the fifth set would come out. And if you didn't get it right away, you were losing all the time. Mm-hmm. Because the power mm-hmm. level just went up exponentially. And right. it got to the point where any actual competitive decks were using the same they were 55-card decks for some reason, probably right. because they wanted to be different. But they were all using the exact same cards. They'd be using right. the same lands, or re- they were called realms in Spellfire. They would use the yes. same realm cards. So it, was, it ended up basically being a race to see who would pull the right cards, because you were only allowed one of any card. Yeah. Except there was a couple cards that said you could use multiples of it. But, um, right, right. Yeah, and it would be a race to see who would get their, hmm. yeah. their get those cards, out first. cards first. And once yeah. that happened, the game was pretty much over. So, yeah. again, hmm. interesting system, but it, it fell down to its own power-ramping um, tendencies. Which, I mean, some people have argued that Magic did as well.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing, though. It's funny. Um, Magic uh, has been very good... At it's uh, it's R and D, you know. Like I think early on, you know, nobody really knew how to do these types of things, but they somehow survived the power creep uh, issue uh, much better. Uh, I think. I mean, I might be wrong, but weren't original Magic card decks forty cards instead of sixty? Um,
0: There's, I, th- um, I think the intro decks, like the first kind of pre-constructed decks you could get were 40 cards yeah. and quickly they made a 60 card rule yeah. for um tournament reasons and then they yeah. started restricting the amount of cards because originally you were allowed to use four of any card other than a basic land which you could use as many as you wanted in a deck you could right. have four of anything in your deck and right then they started to realize that people would just try and get you know four black lotuses four mucks emeralds yep. or whatever and build their deck and every deck was exactly the same so they started to re- yeah, restrict exactly. cards so you're less likely to get those uber powerful cards yeah and they they've been a lot more willing to adapt with their game to yes. what's going on situationally in the meta game i guess you could call it right right then yeah. other card companies just seem to go um we'll just release some more powerful more powerful cards. exactly ends up ending badly
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, as you said, like it would just create this this whole uh, process of of um, wiping out pretty much everything that came before and forcing players to continually buy in uh, when, you know, it was not really not not really. Uh, for the fun of it. It was for the necessity to even, even yeah. be still in the game, you know? Um, I mean, that's always been a part of magic as well to a certain degree, but I think they've really slowed that down too. And, uh, and yeah, the fact, like you said, that they were willing to create restrictions and to modify, um, you know, the, the structure, you know, of uh, some of the numbers early on, I think really saved the game. Um, <clears throat> especially since, uh, I mean, I think around Arabian Nights, they were talking about, uh Possibly adding another color, you know, and that would have completely, you know, I think ruined the game, you know. So it's oh, a good thing that never did, you know. Six
0: colors—that was yeah. That was there. They, there was all sorts of things. Um, at one point in time, I heard they were going to switch the speed at which sorceries were cast. So, like, you there was oh, sure. no divide between instant sorcery; everything would happen mm-hmm. at the same speed instead of one spell being forcibly slower yet usually more powerful in scope, but Right, right. instead of at any point in time. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I they've managed to survive whilst pretty much everything else has fallen by the wayside.
1: Yeah, it is amazing. So, um, uh, so just to change gears a little bit, uh, another card game uh, that I uh, I quite enjoyed back in the day, um, but. It's sort of a funny situation. Uh, was called uh, Guardians, <clears throat> which was a card game based off of uh the the art of, of all the top fantasy artists of the day. Uh, it also came out in '95, which seems to be the, the year of the card game. Well, when you um, say
0: when you say top fantasy artists, you're just not talking random names. I'd never heard of Guardians before, and I don't know oh, how okay. I had ever missed it, but I mean, guys like Keith Parkinson, yes, wrong. Yes. Larry uh, Elmore, Chris yep. Akaleos, um,
1: Tim Bradstreet, uh, Rowena oh yeah. Morrill, uh, Mark Poole, um, uh, uh, yeah, we said Shaw. Elmore, um, Shaw, uh, Don Mates,
0: uh, Mike yeah. Klug. Yeah, it's uh, it's a f- ridiculous list. It's Magic the Gathering. It is probably the biggest who's who. And it's got yeah. a lot of the classic guys.
1: Oh yeah, no. Well, see, I think Magic came out of nowhere, and then um, what happened was Keith Parkinson and uh, his fellow creator uh, Luke uh, Peter Schmidt decided to get in on this. But uh, in fact, it was more of a joke for them. They were kind of like, "Well, you know, everyone's buying these CCGs. Why don't we like create a game to showcase?" Uh, our artists and our artist friends, you know, let's, let's just get, get all the people in the community together to contribute like little pieces of art and we'll tack it onto, you know, a, a card game, you know, just, just to have a system in place, um, and, uh, and see what we can do with it. Uh, but the ironic thing, uh, and again, I'm one of the only people who played this game, um, is the card game was actually good like I mean it, it was based on a very simplistic notion of uh, rock paper scissors uh, essentially there were black and gray and white cards and um, and they kind of had the rock paper scissors effect uh, against each other um, but because of the uh, plurality of artists uh, they pretty much just were like well we got to make up factions because you got to have like you know groups, you know, to, to base our artwork around. So let's, uh, let's have pirates and let's have like undead and let's make up these, you know, goofy creatures and, and elves and fairies. And, you know, let's just do all those standard things. Right. Um, and so uh, the various artists would be like, Oh, I kind of want to do a pirate and I kind of want to do an elf. So they all just kind of just jumped in and did artwork across the board. Uh, and then they would attach these uh, races to the different colors. And, um, and then basically what you would do is you would, uh, you would reveal, uh, characters uh, to see if you could beat people in a rock, paper, scissors fashion. Now, in fact, from that point, the game evolved into something uh, far more complicated. And I guess I'll try to briefly explain. Um, unlike in Magic, where the player is this sort of um, abstract target board for the opponent... Uh, In Guardians, there were actual Guardians, which was like a card that represented the opponent. And uh, they would sit uh, on their end of the table. And then in front of that Guardian, you would lay down uh, three cards representing a wall uh, in front. And then in between were six squares and then your opponent's wall and his Guardian. And so uh, what made the game interesting is you would actually create squads uh, face down. And you would move them across the grid uh, and hopefully uh, get through the wall and uh, then use that squad to attack the opponent. But there was this element in which you had to sort of uh, remember you know, what your opponent was moving around. Uh, Because the only time you got to see them is when uh, two squads met uh, and then they would uh, face off against each other, which is when the rock, paper, scissors part would happen. Uh, So it sounds quite complicated, but in fact, it played very quickly because of the rock, paper, scissors element of it. But then it had this whole extra layer of, you know, uh, hidden squad movement, you know, and um, what I really enjoyed about the game, too, is it had multiple victory conditions. I mean, it wasn't just about racing across and beating up the opponent's uh, guardian. Uh, you could also win by eliminating uh, a certain number of squads. Um, just just being good on, on the battlefield uh, was also enough. Uh, or, uh, I believe, if you took enough squares, uh, you could also win. So, it, it, it really kept... Uh, The strategic element of the game um, uh, very, very much alive and much more vibrant than I think even the creators of the game intended uh, with their goofy art. Um, So it was it was a really cool little game. Um, Definitely one of the most beautiful games. Their card quality was was far in advance of anybody at the time. And uh, and their uh, art quality, of course, was the best. I mean, these guys were all just—they were the top of the line artists of the, of the age. And uh, I think they were doing it for fun more than anything. I,
0: I, I would I would argue that their art quality was probably on parallel with TSR the Spellfire art quality, frankly, because these are all the same guys. Like, yes, <laughs> all of well, them the thing is though, these guys were getting paid for their art in this game TSR. One of the things I know that really pissed some of the artists off, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can say that in this podcast, but they were using only art they already had rights for. Right. So they weren't having to pay the artists at all. Like Magic has had to, like, they commission pieces for each card, and the artist gets paid. But TSR was using admittedly beautiful art that these guys had made for them through all their different books for years and years and years. But they weren't getting paid for it because TSR had paid for it and bought the rights so they could use it willy-nilly as much as they wanted. So there was never yeah. any new art in Spellfire. It yeah, so that was all beautiful, but it was all stuff you'd seen before.
1: That was something that, that actually turned me off. Uh, and one of the reasons why I never got into Spellfire, um, because I mean, with Blood Wars, the art is what attracted me to the game initially as with Guardians. Um, but with with Spellfire, it was so obvious they were using existing pieces because they, they would on, on across three cards, use the same piece of artwork, but focus the frame around a different part of the picture well, exactly to, to indicate a different thing you know and it's it was so it was so cheap like it was just unbelievably it's, cheap
0: it's terrible because and the other thing is you would see a card like um strad von Zorovich's card which was actually a really famous Ravenloft book cover right but you already knew that because you, <laughs> if you were in the hobby store buying your spellfire cards you probably saw that book on the shelf in you know, and it's the same with all of their champions. You're like, oh, I know that art from here or there. And um, the realms, most of the realms were cut up pieces of <laughs> the campaign maps from the. So, like, you would get part of the Forgotten Realms. We'll say it was, like, uh, water deep. And all it is is a zoom in in the water deep area of. The map that comes with the Forgotten campaign set. So it's like, <laughs> it's so in a way, the most, oh, I wish I had kept them because we would get together, have a cup of coffee, and I would show you these, and <laughs> you would look at some of the art and go, "It's unbelievable art," but it's so cheap because it was used on this book or yep. that book. Yeah, and oh, it was just no, I, it was I, it was great but expensive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was well aware of um, the the artwork because I, I had bought a few, uh, you know, art of Dungeons and Dragons books back in the day, you know, for right. their, their dragon magazine covers and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so I could tell, you know, just on a glance, you know, what they were doing with Spellfire and it, it really turned me off. <laughs> Do you remember? Okay. This is an aside because we hadn't discussed this one, but uh, what was that game? Was it like Hyperion or something? It was that, um, you know, that like muscle artist, who like always used to paint Oh, Boris was his name so Boris in the 80s Valeo. yeah Valero yeah and he and he'd always paint his wife and paint himself and they were like these huge like you know <laughs> muscle bound you know yeah. And he he got it he made a card game too. Now that card game, from what I understand, was a joke. I never I never played that one. But it was like every card was like one of his gorgeous, you know, like, you know, calendar, you know, artworks, you know. <laughs> but I don't think there was any game there. I think it was just like literally you're just buying card card versions of his paintings, but man
0: <laughs> That's yeah. yeah was good artist, but yeah, he his his art was pretty <laughs> you knew what you were getting when you heard Vallejo yep. was the artist. Nestle yep. bound, ripped kind of yep. hairstyles all look like members of the eighties hair metal bands like Poison and stuff like that. Yeah. Well
1: he was the best he was the best at that talented. back then.
0: Oh yeah. Very talented guy. Yeah. yeah. I remember so, also the uh, yeah. time all of these card games came out, T S R in one of its like last gasps yep. brought out this game called Dragon Dice. Oh yes which was basically like role-playing dice, but with little runes and stuff on them. I never, I, I yes. got it for free from my local hobby shop at the time because nobody was buying it, and I spent of wow. the money there. So they're just like, here, take this as a sample. Yes. Maybe you'll like it. And I looked at it and brought it back, or came back a couple of days later, and she's like, did you figure out how to play it? I'm like, nope, I got no idea. <laughs> uh, dice uh, uh. look cool, though, but... I, I have heard
1: good things about it, but uh, only f- through a friend who uh, loves dice games. Like I, amongst my circle, I'm the card game guy. Gotcha. Uh, but I have a friend who who just every kind of game that involves rolling dice, he just loves dice chucking, and uh, he loves uh, Dragon Dice. And I think they actually have brought it back recently as kind of like a retro sort of thing. But it's sort of funny because Dragon Dice was the first collectible dice game. Uh, and, and the dice were unique. They weren't just normal dice. They had, as you were saying, uh, uh, specific things printed on them that would yield specific oh, yeah. effects. Um, I think the idea, and I, I might be wrong in this, so next time when we talk about it, I'll just make sure I'll check you know, for errata and, 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 and update this. But I believe the dice represented uh, creatures or spells as well, and you would roll them to try to eliminate your opponent's dice, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not totally sure about it what's interesting though is that it never caught on uh for some reason i think it was in- prohibitively expensive for one thing and uh it wasn't until uh i'd say maybe three three years ago so a good 15 years later um that it came back uh that there are now games that use this Idea of collecting dice and having the dice be the equivalent of cards in CCGs, okay. yeah. um, because I know there's a Star Wars game that is that came out last year, um, uh, based off of Force Awakens uh, that does that has this like dice collecting and and I, I think the dice represent the characters. And uh, just before that, uh, the people who well we're getting off topic now, but there was another company that made uh, Hero Clicks, right, which was a little miniature superheroes that had like uh, data in their bases. That's a whole thing I can get into later but they also made uh, a dice game as well Uh, and they have uh, marketed that uh, for everything like every property they could get their hands on Um, and uh, I don't know how well that game is doing Uh, their dice by comparison to the dragon dice are these pathetic tiny little itty bitty things Um, and the system is a little bit strange but Um, It combines cards and dice. It's the most genius, (laughs) like (laughs) insidious thing you could imagine because the dice are what allow you to, to make, take actions off of a card. So you have to have both. And there's variations on the cards. The dice are all the same, but you need, you can get like Spider-Man, but then you can get like, you know, cosmic Spider-Man. So he would still use, you know, (laughs) Spider-Man dice but there'd be a, a, like a, a CCG element because the it Cosmic spider would experiment
0: have a... Yeah, yeah more exactly.
1: Yeah. So, so i like, man, these
0: guys. <laughs> basically, what you're telling me is there was an r d meeting where yeah. one guy says, you know what's better than one kind of crack? <laughs> Two kinds of crack. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah. I just, want, I see I just want to look it up. I think it's called Dice Masters. Yes, they were called Dice Masters. Uh, they're still around now. I mean, it's a fairly new game, but I think, I think that kind of burned itself out already. Yeah. So I guess to get things back on to the uh, the geeks with kids, um, uh, what other CCGs uh, do you uh, play or, or or
0: currently Mm -hmm. play and I play it more than any other CCG at this point in time, because I have Mm -hmm. a six year old daughter Mm -hmm. who's absolutely enamored with Pokemon. (laughs) <laughs> and for Easter this year, I she kept asking to play because she'd seen the TV show and she's had a plush Pikachu for a couple of years or whatever. Right. And she kept saying, "I want Pokemon cards. I want Pokemon cards." Because she'd seen me play with my Magic cards all the time. I was like, "Well, Magic's for grownups, but there is a game called Pokemon that you can you can play when you learn how to read." Mm. Well, she's reading, yep. and so for I can't remember. I think it was Valentine's Day this year. I got her. Um, her very own starter. I got two starter decks so I could play with her. And um, actually my boss at work gave us a, her kids used to play. So she gave us a whole whack ton of old, you know, beat up Pokemon cards and so forth. But Mara just adores them. Right. Um, and so I've been playing Pokemon and ironically enough, it's a very simplistic game, but it's, it's fair it's enjoyable and like and what blows me away as a like devout magic player mm-hmm. the card quality from Pokemon <laughs> is so much better than the card quality coming out of Wizards of the Coast. Like right now I have a card sitting in front of me from Cat. And I swear it is bent in three different directions. If I sit it down with three corners on the table, the other corner is sticking at least half a centimeter up in the air. Wow. Wow. That's terrible. All of my daughter's Pokemon cards are (laughs) flat. They have foil cards, that not only are they shiny foil and it's beautifully done, it's also textured. Like there's a feel to the card. You know, like you run your finger across it and there's ridges and lines and so forth. Like you'd have to play with it in a deck protector, obviously. But like there's actual thought and care that has gone into these cards. And it blows my mind that these cards for kids, which are going to get trashed, we all know it, are right. made it so much better <laughs> than the biggest card game in the world at this point in time. And they're just, yeah,
1: it's unbelievable. You know, the, the funny thing is um, uh, Pokemon, which I'd like to find out more about how it's it's played, but I just wanted to interject quickly. Um, it, it was originally made by a Japanese company, of course, and then Wizards actually uh, took over at a certain point. Um, but it's now reverted back to the Pokemon Company International since 2003. So it's it's been another company printing them this, this for the last, you know, uh, 15 years. Yeah. And, um, a lot of people don't know this, but, uh, Nintendo, which isn't directly related to the Pokemon card game. Uh, I mean, obviously indirectly, but, um, but Nintendo company, and I don't know the history of this that well, so I'm going to probably get corrections on this, uh, but <clears throat> they originally used to, uh, make, uh, uh, cards, um, card games as well. Um, before they made, um, Video games, so they they have a a very long history that that predates video games by quite a long time. So, the the, the card game idea in Japan is is a whole other beast, you know. And uh, and I think you know they they obviously treat it uh, you know with with a lot of respect um, because there's a lot of huge you know card games in Japan as well that, that operate totally differently than the ones you know over here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, of all the games that came out back in the day, I, I think Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh are probably the last two that still exist alongside magic. You know, like if you think about it, I mean, yep. Pokemon, yep. when did po- a Pokemon came out? Uh, ah, okay. It says first published in 96. So just, yeah, just a couple of years after magic and uh, it survived all this time. It's amazing.
0: That's the um, card game was...
1: Yeah, the card game. Yes, yes.
0: The video game came out in 95.
1: Oh, wow. They jumped on that really early then.
0: Um, Yeah. Franchise copyright is shared by three companies. Nintendo is the sole owner of the trademark for Pokemon. Right. Uh, The franchise was created by Satoshi Tajiri in 1995 and is centered around fictional creatures called Pokemon. So I think it started out as a Nintendo thing. And I know Wizards was making the card game for a while. Right. And I'm wondering if. I'm not sure why they stopped. Like, I can't see Wizards saying, No, we don't want your money. Mm-hmm. But I can see Nintendo saying, Or, I guess, the Pokemon Company saying, um, your card quality is not good <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
1: Hey, this, I don't even know. That. This when is a have... whole other subject that would be very interesting to explore because we're dealing now with, with uh, two very big companies, right? Because like, I, I don't know exactly the history of Nintendo and uh, the people who control Pokemon specifically. Uh, I just looked it up, though, uh, just to clarify what I was saying about Nintendo. Uh, Nintendo was actually founded in 1889. And at the time, they made playing cards uh, called Hanafuda cards. So they've been around a long time, and they know a lot about card games. (laughs) Not the type of games that we're talking about, but they've been in that business a lot longer than anyone else uh, has been uh, involved with.
0: They were one of the first people or first companies in Asia to manufacture, like, Western-style playing cards as well. I would be surprised. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but then with um, uh, what we had sort of hinted on earlier, um, when Magic came out, uh, it crushed the role-playing game industry. Uh, over over a few years, uh, role-playing games uh, completely evaporated. And uh, TSR, the preeminent uh, company, uh, was actually bought by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, and then eventually in time, uh, Hasbro uh, bought... Uh, Wizards of the coast, so we now have these these huge conglomerates you know of, of toys and games you know involved uh, you know in, in the marketing of these things so who knows I mean I'm sure there's a very interesting story with uh, uh, Pokemon the card game uh, moving as
0: a property <clears throat> um, yeah, back and I, forth I would love to know how the backroom dealings and so forth mm-hmm. worked there yeah so how how does uh, how does the game work? Well, Pokemon, basically the idea, if you've ever seen the cartoon, it works a lot like the cartoon. Um, Essentially, in Pokemon, the player takes on the role of a Pokemon trainer. And you have in your deck, you have a deck made up of different little monsters, which are your Pokemon, if you're not aware at this point in time. And um, kind of support cards that allow you to do certain things for those Pokemon essentially what you do is you play at the beginning of the game, you draw a number of cards and you put all of your Pokemon that you have on the table up to a total of six and they have to be basic Pokemon. There are different Mm -hmm. levels of Pokemon, um, usually between one and three tiers. So your first tier would be a basic Pokemon. Your second tier would be a first evolution Pokemon. And your third tier would be a second evolution Pokemon. So for example, um, one of the famous Pokemon is one named Charmander and he's a little lizard with a fiery tail. Um, and then his first evolution is called Charmeleon, which is a bigger lizard with a fiery tail. And then his second evolution would be called Charizard. And he's a really big dragon-like lizard with wings and a fiery tail. Um, and throughout the game, you can evolve these, and they all have different abilities that they can do. And you have to use what they call energy cards, which you attach to a Pokemon. Okay. And you you have to um, get the right amount and combinations of energy cards. So, for example, Charizard or Charmander, Charizard, whatever, would use primarily fire Pokemon or fire yeah. energy cards because he's a, a fire Pokemon. That's his, what they call his type. Right. So, yeah, you attach these to be able to utilize this ability or whatever. And in each combat, which on each turn, you can use one of those abilities in a combat step. So, like, Charizard might use a Fire Blast power to shoot fire at the other Pokémon. And each Pokémon has a certain amount of hit points, and they can do a certain amount of damage points. And once the damage points on the Pokémon exceed its hit points, it gets okay. knocked out. That's very careful not to say it gets killed. So none of these Pokemon ever, like, get really hurt. They just get knocked out. Or you can put them back on what they call your bench, which is your reserve Pokemon. So you only have one Pokemon that's active at any given point in time. Okay. But then there's other ones on on the bench, sorry. So when one gets knocked out, you can then elect to put another one in. And this goes on until... You lay down, uh, at the beginning of the game, you lay down what are called prize cards. There's six okay. of them. Okay. So the ways you, your win conditions for Pokemon are either you draw all six of your prize cards. And when you draw a prize card, it goes into your hand and you can use it as a normal card. It could be a Pokemon or support card or whatever. Um, and the other way you win is by knocking out all of the Pokemon on your opponent's bench. Now, once a Pokemon gets knocked out, so it, it goes into what's basically a discard pile, you can play other Pokemon onto your bench from your hand. So okay. you can keep kind of replenishing your bench. So that's usually the harder way to win. Usually getting all the prize cards is the easy way to win. I see. Although you may only end up drawing two Pokemon, or you may have... You can't play an evolution Pokemon or first or second evolution Pokemon unless you have the basic version of it. Right. So you couldn't play a Charmeleon or a Charizard unless you already had a Charmeleon to play. Right. So yeah, it's it's it it's interesting to watch my daughter go through the thought processes and mm-hmm. like she's she's obsessed with these things in every facet. She loves. She has Pokemon books. She has plush Pokemon. Yeah. We go and play Pokemon Go together, walk around the park or whatever, uh, collect yeah. Pokemon. So, But um, it's she wants to know everything about it. And it's – on the one hand, you're like, yeah, it's something imaginary. But it's it's something that's driving her and gets her mm-hmm. curious about something that's not just staring at the Pokemon on TV. And she'll relate what she sees in the show to the card game or to Pokemon Go. Or, right. So it's, it's uh, interesting yeah. to see – like, it's making her brain work, which is yeah. really kind of what I was hoping for when I introduced her to CCG. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So, all in all, I'm, I'm happy with it. It's it's not something I'm going to decide we should play when we go out for a beer or whatever. Like, hey, let's break up. You can be charming or I'll play Pikachu deck or whatever. No, right. I, I probably Magic or something like that would be a little more adult. But mm-hmm. for doing something with your kids, fantastic activity only right. problem is though it has the crack quality of course. of course so the kids want to buy packs and so far i've only bought mara seven packs of pokemon cards. okay okay and in one of those packs she got a 60 dollar ultra rare foil card wow but yeah it's the value of them is kind of i found surprising as well because i just assumed They'd all be, you know, ten dollar maximum value or whatever. The Mm -hmm. I was talking to one of the local comic shop owners, which, as I should note, as a side of as a side note, if you're going to get into CCGs, those are the places to go.
1: Oh yes, of course. Talk
0: to the guy in the shop. Uh, There's a couple Mm -hmm. online ones, like face to face and so forth, but they're they're really local comic shops that got big.
1: Yeah. On that note, I have a friend uh who uh works at Walmart, so he's always sending me, you know, the things that uh are on the shelf and all the new products. But uh I guarantee you because he'll 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 say, Oh, hey, what's this, uh, Steve? and I'll I'll look it up. The prices at Walmart are a markup of a minimum of forty percent, forty to sixty percent more. So yeah. it, you do need to go to game shops for these things. It's it's not something you want to buy in the supermarket or wherever. The, the markup is nuts. Oh, definitely. It's not worth
0: oh, it. for sure. Um, standard like booster pack price for Magic cards in uh, card shops in Southern Ontario is usually between like four fifty and five dollars. Mm-hmm. It's minimum of six dollars at Walmart.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. It's it's absurd. I mean, it's an <laughs> opportunity buy, <clears throat> or for people who don't know, you know, to to go to a, a card store, and uh, it's it's worth it. I mean, in terms of cost and advice.
0: Oh yeah, for um, sure. Walmart also will uh, not just Walmart. The other chains will also add extra packaging and so forth, which is oh yes, terrible for the environment because it's all plastic and printed cardboard and stuff like that that you don't really want. <sighs> So definitely, yeah. The, yeah, the boxes also, look great. They but, also yeah, can give you good. advice and whatnot about you know, hey, maybe not this, not this set. Try this set, and they're usually upfront and pretty honest about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can't recommend them strongly enough. So on the topic though of uh, of your
1: daughter playing the game and uh, and her getting uh, some. Uh, uh, you know, um, attention and new ideas from it and, and thinking process. Um, so, you would would you say that Pokemon is is a good uh, uh, game for uh, kids who like Pokemon and and want to be introduced to
0: CCGs? Oh, for sure! I think it's a fantastic game. Um, mm. I know a lot of people, uh, animal rights activists, said it's basically glorifying dog fighting. Sure. And stuff like that, uh, or the cockfight or whatever. Um, I get that argument. I think it's kind of vapid and pointless. The mm. The animals in this never get hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, they, they, even if you see on the show, the Pokemon are back up as quickly as they went down. And half the time after they battle their you know, friends with the other Pokemon and stuff like that. So like moralistically, yeah, if you really wanna look into it, you could probably make an argument that maybe it's akin to that. I know my daughter doesn't think of it in that regard at all. But she's learning math, she's learning Yes. Like she's thinking tactically, she's and it's giving her a passion to do something other than sit in front of a television she wants to play the card game she wants to go out and search around in the park for yeah. pokemon stuff like that yeah. it's- <laughs> oh that's cute
1: that's so <laughs> oh, adorable it's, it's
0: freaking yeah especially when she she has a pikachu onesie that she likes to, to
1: wear. Yeah. play something with. that's great no it's <laughs> it sounds like a, it sounds like a perfect uh, companion to enjoying, uh, you know, Pokemon uh, off of Pokemon Go or 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 the show, and and it sounds like thematically it actually works very well. I mean, just from the way you're describing it, it it, it sounds like what they do on the show, you know. So it, it makes sense. You know, it's consistent. Um, and like you said, I mean, I do think that CCGs uh, uh, do allow people to learn uh, problem solving and uh, maybe learn a little bit about odds and uh, anticipation uh, of things. So, you know, there are definitely uh, things that kids can learn uh, from card games um, that, uh, that you, that CCGs are very good at uh, uh, teaching.
0: I agree. Um, I think anytime you're convincing kids to use their brain for something, Mm -hmm. whether it's problem solving in a video game or it's, it's the interactivity that needs to be happening. Right. I think with the multiple platforms that are available, um, especially in the kind of Pokemon uh, world, I, you can be inside playing the card game when it's raining or they can watch the show when they're not feeling that well or, Mm -hmm they can be out walking around at a park trying to find Bulbasaurs in the bushes or whatever. And it allows them to do something they love in different environments. Yes. As opposed to being sat in one spot, watching just the show or watching another show or doing something where there is no interaction for them, where they're not being forced to, use their minds. And I think these days with the prevalence of video games and TV and internet and you need to find different ways to get them involved in something more than staring mindlessly at a screen.
1: Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. And I, I guess like, even though like go uh, can be uh, a great um, shared activity uh, you know, something that you can, you know, do with her. Uh, I think that there is something uh, that's nice about the intimacy of uh, being at a kitchen table uh, you know, with your daughter and, and playing a game, you know, together um, <clears throat> that uh, you know, is, is different than you know, uh, participating uh, in a video game together. It's, it, it's, a, it's oh. a different type of interaction.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. Um, mm-hmm. One of the latest things to come out in the, I guess you could call them CCG, but things like hearthstone and gwent Mm -hmm. and i mean they're great but to me they're video games
1: yeah i don't like i don't like that format as much i mean in terms of the uh, mental exercise and the uh, curiosity you know the whole like trying to crack the system element that i personally like from ccgs uh i find playing those are very impersonal you know and uh, i do think that being able to it's like the difference between you know reading a book you know and and reading something on your computer you know there there is definitely a quality to being able to handle and ponder you know the uh the configuration of of the deck
0: i i agree completely and we can't emphasize enough the importance of the interaction with the other players
1: Mm -hmm. like yes
0: Like sixty percent of the fun of playing Magic the Gathering with your friends is, you know, smack talking, having a cup of coffee. You're interacting, you are having community. When you take that game and put it behind a screen, you are utilizing a screen. Yeah. You know you're not that sense of community, and I think that's one of the things why I enjoy um, Pokemon, whether it's playing the card game with my daughter or playing Pokemon go with my daughter is we're not Mm -hmm. just in screen mode. I mean, even though Pokemon go has that screen mode to it, we're out interacting together discussing, Oh, well like where can we find a Pokemon or where would we find a water Pokemon? She'll say, Hey, maybe, maybe there'll be some squirtles near the lake. Let's go near the lake and see if we can find some squirtles. Those kind of things. And it's, you're doing something in community with someone else. Yes. Like, I I actively resist doing things like playing Hearthstone. It may be a great game, but I want to be able to play my card games face-to-face with my friends. It gives me an excuse to get together with other Mm -hmm. people, whether it's with my daughter or with my buddies, or hopefully one day playing Magic with you or Spellfire or Blood Wars or whatever. You know. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd whole, love to, yeah. Getting together and enjoying a shared hobby without aid of electronics there. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's it's something that's becoming kind of lost in the world and I think it's something we desperately need to get back.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I totally agree. Um I think uh maybe that's a good point to to maybe uh to stop at then um possibly but, yeah uh, yeah so um yeah ccgs uh if you if you liked uh, our discussion on ccgs uh send us an email at uh podcast at geekswithkids.ca or you can follow us on twitter at geekswithkidscn or like us uh, on facebook at facebook.com slash geekswithkidspodcast um as always you can find all of our episodes at lipsyn.com geekswithkids.com or on your favorite podcasting service and if you like what you hear please leave us a review on iTunes Um, but uh, but yeah further to uh, what I was just saying um, if you enjoyed our discussion if you want to hear more about uh, weird dead games that only Steve played and collected or if uh, you want to hear more about uh, uh, really fun experiences uh, Mark has with his daughter with CCGs uh, let us know All right. Thank you.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. Thank you, Mark. And, uh, and
0: everybody, uh, good night. Good night, everyone.